Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Veteran journalist and author Mark O'Neill has featured a number of times on the programme over the years with a variety of topics. Several of them have been about Irish people who've come to Hong Kong to work, Catholic priests and nuns, and Protestant missionaries who set up schools and hospitals, colonial governors, police and soldiers, and two Irish nuns who cured Hong Kong of tuberculosis. In his latest book, Out of Ireland, Mark O'Neill does talk about some of those and their contribution to Hong Kong, but he talks about another Irishman, and that's Mark O'Neill himself. Born in London, it was only when Mark was an older boy sitting at the dinner table that his father suddenly spoke with an Irish accent. This was the start of a journey for Mark, taking him as a reporter to Belfast during the troubles in the 1970s. Mark would work in mainland China, Taiwan, Japan, and Hong Kong. He also researched his grandfather, a Protestant missionary, who spent 45 years in the town of Farku in Liaoning Province. And he tells me about a very personal trip he was able to make there. So we begin our conversation with Mark O'Neill's quest to know more about his Irish background that begins with that seminal moment with his father. That really was the moment of awakening because my father, like many people from Ireland, from Scotland, they come from modest backgrounds. They are not part of the British establishment. They come to London. And they want to be, belong to that establishment, so they have to get rid of their accent. So my father did this. So when I was born and I was growing up in London, in London, the the father I heard was like BBC voice, really no intonation, no emotion, just very flat. So for me that was him. And gradually, as I became older, I realised that this was a necessary. Cloak he used to be a doctor, to be a psychiatrist in the very conservative medical world, and it was just the same for Mrs. Thatcher, John Major, in fact, thousands of people who want to be a professional or join the British elite. You have to talk like that, otherwise you you you're not admitted. And then suddenly this this evening he wasn't drunk; he'd just drunk two or three glasses of wine, not much, but he was very relaxed. And suddenly he says, "Okay." Would you like to hear a speech by Eamon de Valera, who was the Irish president? So we said sure, and suddenly it was like the radio, the channel changed, and de Valera comes from County Clare, so he has a certain accent. So we listened to this for about five minutes, my sister and me, and we, we we're hypnotized by your father. Yes. So then he says, "Well, how about the Irish cardinal?" So we said, "Yes, yes." Now he comes from Armagh, which is also Irish accent, but slightly different. So father masters that too. So that's five minutes, and then he says, "How about the Ulster Premier?" So we say, "Yes, please." Mm -hmm. And the Ulster Premier speaks with a full Northern Irish accent. So in the space of fifteen minutes, <laughs> we have three different Irish people that we've encountered. And then the, there's a knock on the door, and a neighbour comes and wants some milk. And as soon as the door opens and the neighbour enters, father switches the radio channel again because they can't hear this voice. That's not him. His official him is the BBC voice. So he's shown you for the first time his Irishness, his his accents, or yeah. you know, of these people. But but the fact that he's talking in an Irish accent, but he switches back over to 
British English kind of accent. Yes, and re- remember, if you speak with your own voice, it's much more natural and mm. humorous, and 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 you're yourself. Whereas the the, the BBC voice is is much more sort of flat. Yeah, that was the moment of awakening. So after that, I asked him quite a lot of questions about his school, uh, his university, his relatives, and so forth. But he, he didn't want to talk about it because this is part of the change in the personality. You put that part of you behind. You know, you, you've become somebody else. So I then had to do my own research. I mean, no internet in those days, so I had to go to the library. To find out about your own family. And get about books on Irish history or mm. the Irish rebellion or Irish independence or Irish playwrights and so forth. How to find out about your own background. Yes. And he was not forthcoming about his relatives. Um, Mm. He had two brothers, and we didn't see them very often. And he only went back to Belfast twice, once to see his mother and then for his mother's funeral. So then he didn't go back at all. So you must have been, you know, it was you and your sister, and your mother had passed away, or your mother died Mm. in 1955 Mm. from breast cancer, so that's very early in your life. Mm. And uh, so did you have, uh, you must have had, you must, and I think you still enjoy a close relationship with your sister. Yes. I mean, my sister is not so interested in this and all this than I am. But yes, I mean, she was the family member closest to me and she grew up seeing the same father that I did. And, and I mean, still we're very close today. Yes. So when you first hear your father change accents um, and you have that moment at dinner, um, but then following on, when do you start? I mean, you obviously have worked decades as a journalist and a writer um, and, uh, you know, and you speak fluent Chinese, you speak Cantonese uh, and uh, you spent years in Taiwan as well Mm, and mm, Japan. mm. So at what point in your life did you say, I want to discover where my roots are from? Well, I... I had three years and a half in Belfast in the 1970s, so that was the most productive period because that's where my father comes from and my grandfather came from. So I was spent most of my time being a journalist, but uh, there was a lot of time available to go meet my relatives, to go to see where my father was born, grew up, where grandfather went to school, and, and to get the whole background, uh, the Presbyterian background and, and, and the whole society and and understand why he wanted to leave also. What, a so, level of poverty? or No, I think my father's case, he, he was very lucky in his education. He went to one of the best schools in Northern Ireland. He then went to Queen's University, which is an excellent university. He got a degree as a doctor. So it wasn't poverty, but I think it was partly that his father had been throughout his childhood in China. So he was, can I say, almost like an orphan. I shouldn't say that, but... His parents were so far away, and he was living with relatives and friends, I think, with whom he didn't feel very comfortable. So that was one reason. And the other reason was that Northern Ireland then was an extremely sectarian country. It's a very strange society to grow up in. So then, 1938, he moves from Belfast to London, so that's where he wanted to live. You've written, of course, about his father, your grandfather in a previous book, um, who was a missionary in China. So yes, as you say, they spent their lives in in China, but your father would have been miles away. Well, my father didn't speak with great respect about his father. And uh, he told me many stories about him, of which I think some are fanciful. 
But uh, he he said there was one conversation he had with him in which his, his father said, it would have been better if I had been like the Catholic priest who doesn't, who doesn't marry mm. and who devotes all their energies to the community that they're living in. The problem is if you're a, a Protestant and you're married and you have children and those children cannot go to school where you're posted, um, you have this divided loyalty. So you have your, your, your family, may, maybe even your wife in your home country and you're a missionary in another country. So he said it would have been better if I had been like a priest and, and just been by myself in, in Manchuria. And I took that to mean grandfather felt he'd not done well as a father. But as I say, this fa story comes from my father, so yes, <laughs> I, I'm not entirely sure it's true. Yes. I'm talking with Mark O'Neill, <laughs> the author of Out of Ireland. So Mark has, of, of course, been years in Hong Kong as a writer and journalist. And uh, this is him returning to his the, the story of his family, really, and uh, his own childhood. But you also look um, in your book, Mark, at also the Irish contribution in Hong Kong. Yeah, so... Uh, I think a, a book just about me is not interesting enough. Oh, I don't know. No. <laughs> so I've been lucky enough to live in China, lucky enough to live in Hong Kong, in Japan, Taiwan. So let's include in the book the Irish contribution to these places. And it's really quite remarkable. As you know, Ireland's population is very small. It's smaller now than it was in, in, in 1841. It's one of the very few countries in the world in which the population has declined since 1841. So considering the very small size of the country, the contribution that the Irish people have made to China, to Hong Kong, to Japan is really extraordinary. Of course, in China, it's mainly religious. So it would be priests, nuns, Protestants, missionaries, and doctors. Now, in Hong Kong, it's those people and then a lot of other people because Hong Kong was a colony and Britain welcomed people from Ireland before 1922 and after 1922 to come and work here. And it gave them a lot of opportunities. So the Irish contribution to Hong Kong has been very diverse and it continues to be very diverse. You'd have also had, you know, people who'd been university educated, but you'd also have plenty of working class Irish coming here. Yeah, um, Really, until the 1970s, Ireland was a poor country. After independence in 1922, Ireland was politically separate from Britain, but economically it was a colony of Britain. And emigration continued at a very high level. So economic opportunity at home was very limited. But as, as, as you know, <laughs> as I know, if you come here, um, you have many opportunities you wouldn't have at home. So that was a great uh, attraction for Irish people. So there would be many Irish soldiers, policemen. Many of them came from rural areas. They were not especially educated. But when they came here, they could have an excellent position in, in the police force. Then, of course, you had doctors, lawyers, architects, engineers. I mean, a lot of professional people came. And they, again, had enormous opportunities here which would not be available to them at home. When was it that you decided to research? I mean, what, were you in China at the time when you decided to go north to form a Manchuria and, and find out about your grandfather? One of the things I did in Belfast was to meet the ex-missionaries who'd been with him. 
So I, I, I had a certain understanding from from. Oh, so in the seventies. Yes, mm. and uh, one of them in particular, who's called uh, Reverend Jack Weir, who was uh, exactly the same age as my father. His father was a missionary. He trained to be a missionary. He did his university studies in Belfast. He goes back to China. He's in Manchuria when the communists take it over. And he was the last Presbyterian missionary to be expelled. So I met him in, in Belfast, and he was the secretary of the Presbyterian Church, the top administrator. And he was a most impressive figure. He, he was involved in a lot of peacemaking efforts. Uh, they were not successful, but... Uh, he put enormous energy into it at great personal risk to himself. He suffered great abuse from his community for doing this. And the last time we met him, he was in a retirement home in Belfast, and he took us to his room, and everything in it was Chinese. Mm. All the pictures, the sculptures, everything. And his bed was yellow with uh, some golden braid. So he has a twinkle in his eye and he says, Mark, where does this bed cover come from? This is the bed cover of Puyi, the oh. final emperor of China. And I said, come on, Jack, you know. <laughs> Blarney Stone, you've been, you've been kissing the Blarney Stone too much. You know. He said, no, because he was in Shenyang in 1946. And Puyi, of course, became the emperor of Manchukuo. So everything to do with Puyi was, was to be thrown away. So he said one day he went to the flea market in Shenyang and he saw this bed cover. And in the imperial time, colors were reserved for the emperor. So this bed cover could only be of the emperor. So he bought it for nothing. And then he brought it back with him to, to Ireland. So a few years later, he, he passed away. And it is so wonderful that he who wished to spend all his life in Manchuria, he didn't want to go back to Ireland at all. He dies beneath the bed cover of, of the last emperor. Yeah. So, we come from Belfast to Hong Kong, so I have a little bit of knowledge of Manchuria. So, of course, here in Hong Kong, we're much closer to China, so it's sort of easier to follow. And, and I'm thinking, would it be possible to go? And so I was sitting in the Reuters office, it was 1986, and I was reading the People's Daily. And on page 7, it said, uh, China has opened the following 240 towns and cities to the outside world. This, what year is this? 1986. This is a sign of our opening, open-door policy. So I look under Liaoning, which is where, where Falco is. I look under the names of the towns. Oh, and there's grandfather's town. Farku, and Farku has nothing to distinguish it. It doesn't have a famous temple or a palace or a famous person. I mean, there's no reason to open Farku to the outside world. But obviously, the, the Liaoning governor had been given a quota. You've got to open 30 places. So maybe they ran out of places. Anyway, they put in Farku. But in those days, I mean, you couldn't just go to Farku by yourself. That was not allowed. So what we did was we arranged a visit to Shenyang, which is a big industrial city, and we did interviews with <laughs> heavy machinery <laughs> factories, oh, vegetable markets, and, you know. The <laughs> heavy machinery got a good show. You know, we interview the head of the economic planning agency, you know. <laughs> so that you can go and find your So uh, So we've done all that, and it's the last <laughs> night, 
and we're having dinner with our very charming man from the local from the foreign affairs office and we're all in a good mood and he's he's drunk a lot of beer and so we say uh, mr lee uh you know grandfather used to live in this town and um since we're here and it's very close uh, could we go visit it and he said no 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 of course you can't no it's it's not open it's not open so then I produced the Remy Rabauve a month before and I show it to him. To the newspaper, yeah. Yes, and he can't then deny. Uh, and, um, uh, well, um, legally you can go, but it's, it's, it, you shouldn't go, you shouldn't go. I said, is it not safe to go? China is a very safe country. Uh, yeah, yes, yeah, it's very safe, very safe. But uh, uh, you see, the problem was um, if we went, it's his problem. Yes. Yes. Because we're under his responsibility. So after more beers <laughs> and a lot of talk about piety, you know, piety to your parents, piety to your ancestors. This is a visit of piety to my grandfather. It's not reporting. Reluctantly, he agrees. Now, he doesn't have to agree. He's a nice guy, helped by the, the beer. So he agrees. So the next day we hire a taxi and we go there and he'd called ahead. So we arrive and there's no hotels in Farku, it's just a small town, but there's a guest house. So we pull up in this guest house and there's the, the, the party chief and the mayor and so on. They're all standing there and we get out of the car. <laughs> Amri, they're completely confused because this has never happened before. You know, Farku has been closed since 1948. So suddenly there's me and Tai Tai getting out of the car. So your wife, Louise, yes. yeah. Yes. But on the other hand, it's open. You know, the China's policy now is open door. So uh, they're very confused, but very friendly. So you're the first foreigner for, for many of them. Well, we should say first Westerner. I mean, I think yeah. some Japanese may have come, but on business only, to buy products. Mm. But certainly first Westerner, yeah. So... Uh, they're very friendly and they, they show us to a room and we're the only people <laughs> in the guest house. So we have a, a big dinner that evening, but there's nobody there <laughs> except for Louise and me because they don't know what the protocol is and if they have a dinner with you, will they be asked ask questions by people? Why why did you have dinner with them? What did you talk about? So the safest thing is, to, it was an enormous banquet, <laughs> huge numbers of dishes, but only the two of us. So anyway, we go to bed now. Amory, I've learned through other sources that grandfather's cook is living in Farku and he works in the local bread factory. Okay, so I'm a bit naughty the next morning. So I get up at 4. At 4.30, I climb out the back window and it's only the third floor I and mean, it's not, not very difficult. So did you use sheets? No, I mean, I was able to climb down. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like in the James Bond movie. No, it was quite easy. So I say to Louise, keep, keep them... Busy as long as possible. <laughs> Is she used to this kind of work? Well, we, well sure, yes. <laughs> so I, I'm walking along and it's, it's, the sun's just coming up and I meet an old lady. I said, where's the bread factory? She's, she's always just down there on the left. I mean, it's a small town. So we go into the bread factory and the door's open. So I go in and I said, uh, there was a man there. I said, "This uh, Mr. Zhao here? He said, yes, yes, yes. He's sleeping over there. He's sleeping actually on the windowsill. So I, I go down the corridor and there's Mr. Zhao. This is my grandfather's former chef sleeping on the, on, on the windowsill. It's now about five. So I nudge Mr. Zhao and he wakes up. And I said, sorry to disturb you, Mr. Zhao. You know, I'm the grandson of your former employer. Ni mu shi, you know, pasta ni. 
could I trouble you to sit down and have a conversation? And perhaps you could tell me what grandfather used to eat. So he was very nice, Mr. O. He didn't demand to have a big breakfast or, or who the hell are you? No. So we sit down on this table and I put a notebook and a pencil and he writes the, the menus of grandfather. So, Amory, can you imagine my emotions at that moment? I found the man who, you know, lived with my grandparents. Because you never knew your grandfather. No. And here he is writing, you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner. Aww. And I'm quite ashamed to tell your listeners that uh, whilst Grandfather was extremely polite and would eat Chinese food, of course, when invited, but at home he preferred to, to have Western food, which is, doesn't sound good if <laughs> you lived in China for 45 years. Not only that, but worse. I mean, he, at home he drank uh, Lipton tea. <gasps> I mean, he's in, the, he's in the kingdom of tea, <laughs> the country that created tea. And he insists on drinking the black tea with milk and sugar, which is what they drink in Ulster. So Mr. Zhao told me that every three months he had to take a horse cart on this, on this mud road to the South Manchurian Railway. This is the Japanese railway. And then the railway is very fast. And he goes to Shenyang and he buys three months' worth of Lipton tea, so huge boxes <laughs> and he brings it back in the train and he's back on the horse cart. Bop, 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 bang, 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 bang. And he comes back and this is what... Just say, what were the years that your grandfather was in China? And give me also his, his English name. Reverend Frederick O'Neill, 1897 to 1942. And remember, if you're a minister, you're a teetotaler, right? So the tea is what you drink. And you drink all the time because people are coming to see you you're having meetings that <laughs> they drink all continuously, you know. But is that cook, is that chef, the only, other than your father, the only personal link that you've had to your grandfather of that sort that actually knew him in person? Uh, Reverend Weir. Oh, yes, Jack Weir. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, he knew of him because um, his father and my grandfather were a similar mm. generation. But I mean, it was a little tricky because... Reverend Weir did exactly what his father did. He wanted to spend all his life in Manchuria as a minister. But my father, who was just the same age as him, he took another path in life. I won't say the opposite path, but a quite different path. So we had to <laughs> avoid getting into that discussion. Mm. So, yes, so Reverend Weir knew him. and then, um, But the only person I've known in Farku who knew him personally would be this cook. He's, he's lying asleep on this windowsill. Suddenly, the grandson of the man he used to go and get Lipton tea for walks in. But I mean, was he? I mean, was he shocked? Was he? You know, did it make his day? Or well, as I say, I'm I'm so full of admiration for him because he could have said, "Who the hell are you? I don't know who you are. Prove who you say you so are." This is 1986. Yeah. And yes. in those days, you know, no foreigners ever went to Farku. It might be dangerous to speak to foreigners. But no, he didn't say any of that. He did it immediately. And I'm glad he did, because despite Louise's best efforts, <laughs> by about 45 minutes, uh, Posse arrived, <laughs> arrived from, the, from the town government, of course. But that's why I had to get up at f uh, four o'clock, because I knew if I asked for a meeting with him, it would be impossible to have a normal but conversation. But also, I mean, four o'clock in the morning is a good bakery time. Yes, a good bakery time. Do you still have those menus that the chef wrote? 
Mm, yes, I have them in a box. <laughs> he said uh, it was a challenge for me to work for your grandfather because he didn't want to have uh, Chinese cuisine. He, he demanded Western cuisine, so I had to learn how to make it. So he said this is quite difficult for me. And one of the evenings in the guest house, the manager of the guest house sits down next to me with a pad and a, a pencil. And he says to me, now, Mark, now we're open to the outside world. We're going to have all these foreigners coming to stay here. <laughs> what are we going to do with them? What are they going to eat? Will you explain to me what, what their menus are? So the tables are turned now. So he, they, he's the man with the pencil and the notepad. So he said, what do foreigners like for breakfast? So I said, well, they like porridge. <laughs> he could handle that, you know, because congee, you know, similar. I said, they like to have eggs. Yes, he could handle that. Then I said, they like bread or toast with butter and jam. And he became quite puzzled. He said, bread, yes, we can handle that. Jam, yes, we can handle that. But what is butter? Really? I mean, if you have bread and jam, why do you need to have something else? Now, in Chinese, there are two words to describe butter. So you can say yellow oil or you can say cow oil. Right. So I used both of these, but neither worked. So obviously he'd never come across this strange thing and he saw no reason for it either. Did you say cut the toast in, in tri <laughs> triangles? <or laughs> Sorry, Amory, we didn't, <laughs> we didn't get to that. But I was most impressed by his attitude that this man who'd never seen a foreigner before, a Westerner before, was conscientious to want to prepare yes. the recipes. And I'm thinking if, if a Chinese person arrived in Hampshire or in, in Bordeaux, would the, the manager of that guest house ask the Chinese what the Chinese wanted to have for the menus? I don't think they would have asked. <laughs> so I was most impressed by this. <laughs> the children of Farku have never seen a big nose before. So I'm wandering on the street and I have about 50 children. <laughs> around me, you see. Now, when you were a child, Amory, did you read the Pied Piper of Hamelin? Yes. That story? Well, that's how I felt. So I said to them, well, let's go. There's, there's a hill over there. Let's go to the hill. So we, we all walk. I walk along and all these children come with me. And we walk to the top of the hill. It's not a very high hill, but it's a hill. So here we are at the top of the hill. And there are a row of big trees on this hill. We have a very nice discussion. So one of the children says, your nose is so big. How can you possibly breathe with such a big nose? And then the child next to him says, you foreigners, how do you eat? I said, how do you mean how do you eat? He said, well, you've got one, two, three, four, five. You've got five entry points. <laughs> Which one do you use? Did you say? Do you stick a fork up to your ear? No, no. So uh, I wasn't quite sure what to answer. So I said, yeah, we're there. So they were all a bit surprised by that. What, pointing to your mouth? Yes. So then the third one says, in your country, does everyone speak Chinese? So, I mean, what do you think I said? What would you say? <laughs> the polite thing to say. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I said, everyone in the world speaks Chinese. Wow. <sighs> So I had a hundred voices of approbation, you know, delighted. I mean, we know we're the center of the world, but this affirms it. You know, people in Africa and people in Europe all speaking Chinese because of us. And children, Amory, speak the truth. 
we adults, we don't speak the truth. Mm -hmm. We speak politenesses and we try not to offend people and, and say the right thing and be PC. But children don't. They just they speak directly. So that was very mm. precious. What an interesting heritage. Author and journalist Mark O'Neill there talking about his Irish family connections, which are told in his latest book, Out of Ireland. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>